Welcome to Frontline Church, South OKC's podcast, where each week we upload a new sermon from our sermon series. If you have any questions or concerns or need prayer for anything, feel free to reach out at hello at frontlinechurch.com. Thank you. The scripture for today's sermon comes from 1 John 3, 1 through 18. The word of God speaks to us. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies him as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning, because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain who is of the evil one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil, and his brothers righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. This is God's word to us. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Bethany. Hey, good morning, guys. It's good to have you. If we've not met, my name is Andrew. I get to serve as one of our pastors here. So good to be with you this morning. Hey, parents, I just want to say you may have come in with a little bit of heightened anxiety at the thought of your kids being in here. It doesn't bother me at all. I'm glad that they're here. We do this strategically a couple of times throughout the year. And the reason why we do it is we want our kids to watch us worship. We want our kids to watch the way we open up the word of God together. We want to let our kids watch the way that we profess faith in Jesus and demonstrate repentance and do baptisms. And so kids in the room, stoked that you're here. You are way more interesting and cute than your parents are. And uh, I, I, I come from a big family, so I don't 
quite feel at home unless there's like a baby crying in the background, you know? Um, one of 10 kids, so baby crying is like weirdly soothing to me. So uh, it's good to have you in this room today. Uh, hey, t- ne- next week's a really big week in the life of our church. Our bread and butter as a church is to take books of the Bible and slowly work our way through those books. And we are jumping into the book of Genesis starting next Sunday. We're going to take 11 weeks to explore the first 11 chapters of Genesis. We are not going to do one chapter a week. We are, though, going to take 11 weeks to work our way through those first 11 chapters. And then, essentially, the plan after that is to to pause and probably study another book of the Bible and then jump back into Genesis and do that periodically over the next few years. So, eventually, we'll get our way all the way through the book of Genesis, but we'll take it in chunks. So, that, that that's a great series. If you're here today and you're not a Christian or maybe unsure of where you stand on certain things. Maybe the last few years have been marked by some upheaval in your faith, and you're trying to figure out, where am I in all of this? I think next week would be a really helpful week for you to jump back in with us. Uh, we're going to study the, our, our origin story. We're going to study, like, really why God wanted to, to do this, and what his heart is, and, and, and why we believe what we believe, and what the Bible actually teaches about why we're here, and where this is all headed and all of that. So all of that is going to be unfolding next week as we get into Genesis. I hope to see you back then. But today, today's a fun one. Today we get to just talk about what one of the most important metaphors used about the church, which is the family of God. So if you have a Bible, go to 1 John chapter 3, and there's a lot happening in this chapter, but we're just going to look at a, a couple of things. So let me pray for us, and we'll we'll get in. Father, thank you for the gift that it is just to just to be with the church today, to, to, to hear the stories of not just our own faith and not singing just truth uh, in general, but to see real live people get in the waters of baptism and say that they want to follow you. And we, we pray for each of those people that got baptized today, that you would fill them with the Holy Spirit and that you would empower them for a life of, of service and ministry in the city and for the world. We pray that you would bless them so that they would be a blessing to those around them. And God, we pray that they would be rooted and established in your love. And all that we're praying for them, we pray that you would do in us today. Thank you for this powerful metaphor of the church, your church as not just an institution, not just a, not, not just a thing, but a family. And today we pray that we would encounter you as our father and you would grow us as a church to more live into this reality of being brothers and sisters. So meet us today, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. I want to introduce you to my family real quick. Here's a photo of my wife and my, my three kids. And uh, so my, my oldest uh, cutie there, Evie, and she is absolutely adorable. Our first, she's, she is 11 years old, turns 12 next month in October. And she is, she's awesome. She's brilliant. She's funny. She's kind of growing into the place of a young girl where she's now like about the height of my wife and I'll walk into a room and mistake her for my wife, which is super freaky for me to, to be like, I had a little baby. What happened to that little girl that now is turning into a young woman? Uh, my, my second oldest daughter, Eleanor, there in the pink. She is nine years old. She turns 10 in January. She's the funniest kid you'll ever meet. Just hilarious, goofy, silly. You can't spend five minutes with her and not laugh. Uh, she's she's absolute, uh, an absolute joy. And then my youngest son, Bear, he's five, but on Wednesday, he turns six. 
And he won't let me forget because for the last almost six months, he's asked me every day, how many days until my birthday? Literally, I'm not kidding, every day, how many days? And I can finally say, just a few more days, it's on Wednesday. So he turned six on Wednesday. He is an absolute blast. We named him Bear. That's like not his nickname. That's his actual name. So if you're over the age of 50, feel free to judge me. Uh, we know, I already know that you do all the time. Uh, I had an older man say, what, what's his real name? And I was like, his real name's Bear. And he said, no, what's his real name? And I was like, his real name's Bear. And we went on and on like that until he just gave me like a smirk and walked off. And I was like, yeah, okay, I get it. But he, he's, he is full of life and energy. He's so much fun. And here's, there's a lot of things I love about being a dad. There's a lot of things I love about having kids. Um, it's hard for sure. It's messy. It's a lot of work. Um, but one of the things that is obvious that I just didn't think through was how fun it is that they take after your personality traits or your facial expressions or various ticks that you have that, that they just, you don't teach them. They just inherently take on some of those personality traits. It's awesome. Uh, there are times where I'll look at my kids and they have a look on their face that if I looked in the mirror at the same time, it's like, that's my look on my face, you know? Or they do a laugh that I do, or they do something that my wife did when she was a, a little girl. It's super fun and super interesting. Uh, one of the things about me that's sort of ironic and frustrating is I'm the most competitive person that I know. I'm incredibly competitive. But alongside of that, I'm also the least talented person that I know. And so, like, when it comes to sports or anything athletic, I'm, I'm, like, more competitive than anybody else, but also, like, really unathletic at virtually everything. And so the only thing about me that, that is good is, like, I, I don't have any quit in me. I won't stop. Like, I, I ride my bike a lot, and I, I would rather, like, my, my legs be bloody stumps. But I will still pedal my bike. I'm not going to quit pedaling. You know, that's sort of my personality. And yesterday I was on a run which is as bad as it sounds, and, um, and, and my son joined me for a half a mile as I was finishing my run, and I could tell he was getting gassed at one point, and I said, Bear, just make it to that truck. Once we get to that truck, take a break, and I'll circle back around, and you can run with me. So we got to the truck, and I look back, and he's not stopping, and I was like, Bear, you can take a break right here. He's like, I'm not stopping, Dad. I feel good. I'm going to keep going, and you could tell he was not feeling good, and he wanted to stop, and I was like, that's a Burkhart thing right there. I, I know what you're feeling right now. And, and if you're a parent in the room or if you've ever just seen kids of other parents, you know this is inherently true. They just take on the, the DNA, the personality, the, the, for, for good and for bad. Who we are shows up in them in some really stark ways. Now, with that in mind, with that in mind, I want you to think about this powerful metaphor that the New Testament uses again and again to describe the reality of the church in our relationship with God and our relationship with one another. And notice what John says in 1 John 3, verse 1. He says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. This is amazing. This is breathtaking because what John is saying is that the primary way that you and I should relate to God, and this is not just John, this is all over Scripture, Old and New Testament, but especially coming through in the New Testament, the primary way that we should relate to God is not just generically as God. It's not as 
creator or ruler, although God happens to be both a creator and a ruler, and he, he does both of those things, but the primary way that we should think about and relate to God is as father. And it's amazing, it's breathtaking that this father has made you and I his children, his sons and his daughters. That's the, in Greek, this first verse, it, it reads very different. It, it says, from what country does this love come from? In other words, it's like what we might say, that love is out of this world, or it's completely unrecognizable to us. It's unbelievable that God, the God of the Bible, would want us to have him as a father. And with that in mind, J.A. Packer, in his amazing book, Knowing God, says, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he thinks of the thought of being God's child and of having God as his father. If this is not, if this if this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that is distinctively Christian, as opposed to merely Jewish, is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. I love this line. He says, Father is the Christian name for God. Now, I'm not going to press this issue too far, but I do slightly get annoyed by how much we as Christians just talk about God, 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 in a generic sense. Because anybody can say God and mean whatever that means to you or to me. It, it might mean like a divine Santa Claus in the sky or a cosmic fairy or a benevolent dictator of the earth or some, whatever, a higher power. But, but, but the God of Scripture, the God of the Bible, isn't just God in a generic sense. He's primarily revealing himself to us through the Son as a father that wants to relate to us as a father and wants to have us as his family. That's amazing. It's amazing. Now, with that in mind, and with the idea of kids that slowly take on the family resemblance, there's a lot that we could unpack in 1 John 3, but I want to just pull out two things. Two things, two family traits, if you will, that as Christians, you and I should be taking on naturally, supernaturally, if you will, as a part of being adopted into the family of God. So with that in mind, look at 1 John 3, verse 1. Let's go through it. He says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Now, pause there for just a minute. This is a big idea. What he's saying is we were at one time a part of a very different family the family of the world, or we were children of the devil. That's what's going to show up. Now, when you and I think of children of the devil, you might think of like children of the corn or something like that. And, and it's like, yeah, we weren't that. But actually, according to the Bible, we were all a part of the family of darkness. We were all children of the, de the devil. We were all a part of the family of the world. But then God in his mercy and in his grace, he did something, and he actually sends Jesus to rescue and redeem us. And you and I, if you're a follower of Jesus, it's not because you're great or brilliant or more spiritually attuned to God than other people. It's because God, by his mercy, caused your dead heart to come alive. He forgave you of your sins and adopted you into his family. And now you've been brought out of that family of darkness into his family. 
You have God the Father as your father, and actually you have each other, the people in this room, other Christians, as your brothers and your sisters. So there's two families here. There's the family of the world, the family of the devil, and there's the family of God and his kingdom, right? So with that in mind, let's keep going. Here's what it says in verse 2. He says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be is yet to be appeared, but we know that when he appears... Excuse me. We shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. We talked about that in 1 Corinthians 15 when Jesus returns. Our our physical bodies will be raised from the dead and transformed to be like his. And then look at what he says in in verse 3. This is massive. He says, And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Then he goes on in verse 4. He says, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Now you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. (coughs) And no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever practices Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Then verse 9, he says, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed, God's DNA, abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. So the first family trait that I want us to look at is the trait of holiness, the trait of holiness, or another way to talk about holiness is the trait of being set apart, or the trait of being completely other, different than, right? There's something that happened to us when God saved us. If you're a follower of Jesus in the room, there's something that happened to us where he made us holy. He set us apart. He made us other. He took us out of this family of darkness and into his kingdom and into his family of Light And so there's something that happens where you and I are made holy, but then catch this, we're also called to live into who we are made to be. We're actually called to live into this holiness that we've been made into. Now, now here's what I've noticed doing ministry in Oklahoma. I've been formally doing ministry for the last 15 years. I'm, I'm from here, born and raised. I've never lived more than 30 minutes from where I was born. And what I've noticed about a lot of us in Oklahoma is that we have a lot of connection and relationship to the church. So either you were born and raised in the church or you had friends that were born and raised in the church. And what I've also noticed is despite the fact that there are many good churches and a lot of great things happening all over our state uh, in churches, a lot of us grew up in a more legalistic bend. What I mean by that is this idea that there's this ladder that stretches from heaven, from earth to heaven, and, and God is there, and we're here, and, and, and he, he loves us in a general sense because he's God and he has to, but he doesn't really like us. And, he, and, if, and if, the, if our picture were to pop into his mind, he'd kind of frown and, and be upset at us. And so the idea here is that he can learn to put up with us over time if we clean up our act, and if we get our stuff together, and if we do more good things than bad things, and if we get our addiction sorted, and if we try hard. And if we do, if we're just more committed and more devoted and better people, God will love us more. And this was sort of the legalistic bend that many of us grew up inside of. And it was amazing, wasn't it? When the, when, when the reality of grace set in for the first time, 
where you realize that actually it was on my darkest day that I was loved by God. Actually, it was when I was struggling with sin and giving into temptation that his love was full force in my face, headed my direction. Actually, it was when I was hating God, wanted nothing to do with God, dead in sin, that God made my heart come alive. He's always loved me, even on my worst day. He loved me. And it was amazing, wasn't it, when grace set in for the first time? But I think what's happened is that we've forgotten that grace actually produces something really powerful in us where we become so overwhelmed with his love, so overwhelmed with the reality of what he's, he's done for us, that it actually does change us slowly over time from the inside out. In other words, friends, despite what you might think, holiness is not a bad word. It's becoming really popular to dog on purity Purity culture, purity culture. And listen, we could talk about purity culture all day long. There was, that was a hot mess, and there was a lot of baggage with purity culture. But don't forget that the word pure is used in this text here to describe the life that you and I are called to embrace and live in. Let, let's not lose the beauty of this reality of holiness and purity and righteousness and the importance of good works. These are all things that, that, that this text is saying— If you've been made a part of the family of God, you now have the holiness of God living in you. You have God's DNA. And this is a family trait that as you you grow in time, you start to look more like your father. Now, this is interesting. He says it this way in verse 9. I want you to notice. He says, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. Why? For God's seed... God's DNA, God, who he is, what he's done, God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Now, there's there's a chasm here between never ever struggling and making a practice of sinning. Those are not the same things. John is not saying that when you become a Christian, you've suddenly arrived. Hey, congratulations, you're now a Christian. You've arrived. You don't struggle anymore. You don't have any more temptations to give into. It's like you're on the top of the mountain, spiritually speaking, and you're you're there. You've hit the destination place. That's not the way it works. If you're a Christian for more than five seconds, you know that there's still this old part of you that's waging war inside of you. There's still this, like, desire to give in to sin. I've been following Jesus for a long time now, and there are still so many things about my life that I'm like, man, there's a gap between who God has made me and how I live. And I want to see that gap closed. But So is, is John talking about that? No, no, the, the, that's not even how it works with our own biological children, Right? the way that we take on the personality traits and the distinctiveness of our heavenly father is sort of like the way we take on the personality traits and distinctiveness of our earthly parents. I remember when uh, my wife and I got pregnant, mainly she did all the getting pregnant part, Um, but so when she was pregnant with our our first, uh, we were so excited to meet our daughter. What is she going to look like? Is she going to take after the post side or the Burkhart side? Is she going to have, you know, my personality more or my wife's? Or like, what, what is she going to look like? We were so excited to, to lay eyes on her for the first time. And I'll never forget, I, I was able to catch her, which is, I don't know why they do that. But I was, I was there for it. I was like, this is great, you know. And so I, here I am. I was able to catch her. And when I laid eyes on my daughter, I was like, I don't even think that's a human person. 
I, like her head was misshapen and stretched out and she was purple and awkward looking and like she definitely didn't look like a Burkhart or a Post and not really anything a part of the human race. And it took a few days. Then I was like, oh, it is a human. It is a baby. We didn't give birth to an alien, you know. And, 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 then, and then over time as she grows up, she takes on more and more of the traits from my wife and from me. And she starts to look like us. And now you can see her in a room and you're like, yeah, that's a, that's a Burkhardt. I can point her out. That's what it's like with you and I as followers of Jesus. We're, we're adopted into the family of God. It's not like, boom, now you have all the, the holiness of God pumping through your veins and you're, you're, you're living in the way that he, it doesn't work like that. It takes time. And as you walk with Jesus over years and years and years, you start to notice like your reactions look more like his. Your approach to generosity starts to mirror the Father's approach to generosity. Your, your, your care and concern and your sacrificial giving and your, your offering of your life to others, it starts to resemble your heavenly Father in some ways that are really powerful. That's what John is saying. But, but friends, we do need to wrestle with this. Don't let yourself off the hook. We shouldn't let ourselves off the hook. John is going to say something here that's sobering. He's saying, don't make a practice of sinning. There's a difference between struggling and making a practice of sin. Notice what he says in verse 7. He says, little children, let no one deceive you. Why does he say that? Because it's easy to deceive yourself on this point. It's easy to think that, no, I'm good. I prayed a prayer one day. I walked an aisle. I went to False Creek. I, I made a decision for Christ. I'm good. Are you? Is that how it works? Don't be deceived. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. And whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been <clears throat> sinning from the beginning. Then he says in verse 9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. I love and am terrified at how black and white John's words are. John is saying this, hey, if it looks like a duck, if it waddles like a duck, if it quacks like a duck, you are dealing with a duck. If it looks like a righteous person, if they behave like a righteous person, if their reactions tend to be righteous, not perfect, you're dealing with a righteous person. If their actions, on the other hand, are habitually making a practice of sin, building their life around sin, and just in the name of grace, whitewashing all their behavior of like, oh, God loves me and I'm fine, then actually what you're dealing with is someone who has not yet been transferred out of the, the family of the devil and is still a part of that family. This is sobering words. Or to say it another way, in his book, Who God Says You Are, Klein Snodgrass, I've quoted this many times, he says, let's get something straight right from the beginning. If you do not act like a Christian, you are not a Christian. Yes, I'm willing to die on that hill. There is no such thing as an identity that does not act. If you do not treat people, especially spouses and other family members, from and with Christian virtues, there is serious doubt that you are a Christian. And no, I do not believe in salvation by works, but I do know that faith involves attachment to and participation with Christ. And if that is the case, you cannot be attached to Christ without acting in accord with his character to some large extent. Identity informs behavior. So friends, I just want to ask you, if you're a follower of Jesus, you claim to, to trust and love and follow and obey Jesus, 
where in your life do you need to see this trait of holiness, your father's characteristics, more a part of your life? Is it in your money or your relationships or your marriage or your singleness or with your gender or sexuality or whatever? Fill in the blank for you, your job, your vocation, your, your hobbies, your life. Where is who God is and his trait of his holiness need to see itself more manifested in your life? This is the first trait that we need to wrestle with. Now, I said there's two that I wanted to look at, and here's why it's important that we look at the second one, because holiness by itself is not always a good thing. Or another way to say it, holiness in Scripture never comes by itself. If you're dealing with someone who is truly holy, it's not holiness devoid of love. It's not someone who is just holy but lacks everything else. In other words, it's easy if the focus is primarily just on holiness for you and I over time to become rigid and rude and antagonistic and joyless and just generally plain old mean and not fun to be. Yeah, so, so here's why this picture matters. I was like, why is everyone laughing? Oh, it's because it's Angela from The Office. And here's what people think when they think of Christians. This is sort of the thing that comes to mind. So she plays the Christian character in The Office, which, by the way, I just discovered they have extended cut of all of the episodes. It's changed my life. It's amazing. And so my wife and I are watching back through, and it's interesting to to notice this is how uh, the people in her office are thinking that Christians are. It's like, I'm the holy one. But also, she's rude. She's cold as an icicle. She's not fun to be around. She's incredibly judgmental and harsh. She's like prickly in every way. And, and so hear me, friends, when we're talking about holiness, we're not talking about that. That's not what we're talking about. That's why holiness needs to be paired with this other trait of love. Look at what it says in verse 10. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, but notice this, nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, we're going to study more about Cain in our Genesis series, who is of the evil one and murdered his brother, and, and why did he murder him? Now we're given some insight to that story, because his own deeds were evil, Cain's, and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Here's the second trait that I want you to see. It's the trait of love. So holiness is something that you and I are going to take on more and more, but then also Love. Now, let me be clear about something. Growing in a person who takes on this characteristic of love doesn't mean that the world's going to love you in return. Can I get an amen from anybody who's tried that path? You will not be loved by the world, right? So just because the world might think that you're like Angela from The Office, right, they they can think whatever they want to think, but the reality is the more and more you grow as a Christian, you grow as a person who is holy and loving, but that's no guarantee that the response from other people in your life to your legitimate Christ-like love is going to be love in return. There's just no guarantee of that. In fact, what we have a guarantee of is that they're not going to understand you and the world's going to hate you. But notice here that our relationship with the Father is to be marked primarily by holiness, and yet our relationship to other people, especially in the church, 
is to be marked by love. This is a powerful metaphor. That when you are saved, you are not just saved into a family to have God as your father. But that also means that you are saved into a family and now you have brothers and sisters in Christ. This is why a minute ago when we baptized people, we welcomed them into the family of God and we took ownership and responsibility to come alongside of them and encourage them, to strengthen their faith, to pray for them, to, to, to call them out on their sin when we need it, to live lives of sacrificial love for them because they're now our brothers and our sisters. They're not just people that we don't know. They're our family now. Now, this is really interesting. If you study the New Testament, what you're going to find is that there's a lot of terms for Christians. You'll have sometimes this word friend used. At other times, disciple is used. Followers, servants. There's a lot of different words. What's really fascinating to me is that the word disciple is used 252 times in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and in the book of Acts. 252 times. It's the predominant way to talk about a Christian in the Gospels and in Acts. Disciple. But guess how many times the word disciple shows up after Acts? Zero. Do you know what's replaced with disciple? Brother and sister. Now, this is really significant. What this means is that there, there is no me and Jesus Christianity. It does not exist. That when you are saved into Jesus, you are also saved into a family. And just like you were born into a family with people that you like and also some people that you don't care for very much, you are also saved into a spiritually family, spiritual family, and some of those people you happen to really like. And other people in this room you happen to not care for as much. And that's okay, but guess what? They're still your family. And actually, I would even argue they're almost more your family, which is really fascinating to think about. That you and I have been saved into a spiritual family with brothers and with sisters. Now, catch this, because this is so easy to assume that you know. Catch this. The defining characteristic that helps you and I know if you are in this family of the world, marked by the devil, or in this family of God, marked by holiness, is love. That's the defining characteristic. And it's love not as defined by our society or our culture or by our world. And, and friends, it's love not even in a generic way of like, I love all people. I love all humanity. I love the global population. No, it's primarily Christian love for people in the church. And this is really, really important. What John is saying is the way you know you are a Christian or not is based on your loving relationship towards the church or not. How do you love brothers and sisters in the faith? And if you don't, that should be concerning. Notice, here's what he says. He says in verse 11, this is the message that you've, message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. He says in verse 14, we know that we passed out of death into life. How? Not because of our theology or our doctrine or ability to pass a test about Bible knowledge. No, we know that we passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Verse 14b says, whoever does not love abides in death. And they are pulling from, John specifically is pulling from something that he heard out of Jesus' own mouth in John 13. Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I've loved you, you also are to love one another. 
By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. One another. He's referencing primarily the church. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't love everybody. We should. We should love everybody. Everybody in the world is, according to Jesus, our neighbor. But John is poking on something specific here about the way that we love brothers and sisters in the church. That's why he keeps using the word brother and sister, which is referencing Christians, not just people in general. Here's his point, that the world over time looks more and more like Cain and is marked by hate and actually is unleashing havoc and destruction and murder on people. But Christians, the church, more and more over time, it starts, we start to look like Christ and we're marked by love and we end up doing good for one another and pouring out our lives for one another. Now, here, here's, here's the knee-jerk reaction if you're like me. Well, I'm a loving person, right? Like, how, how many of you in the room, and don't raise your hand because it'd be kind of weird for everybody, you included. How many of you in the room would, would just be like, I'm a hateful person? I have a vision of being a hateful person in this world. I, I don't have a vision of being a loving person. Like, I would prefer to just be a person of hate. Nobody thinks that. Everybody in our society, everybody in our culture, everybody alive right now has a, an inherent value of wanting to be known as a loving person. So how do you know if you are or not? Is it, ha, ha, let's ask another question, maybe even more importantly, what is love? How do we even know? Because I love my wife, I love my kids, I love barbecue, I love cycling, I love Jesus. What is love? What, what love are we talking about here? How do we understand love? And culture is completely unhelpful here because all our culture will tell us right now about love is that love is love, which is an unhelpful circular statement. That's like saying fried chicken is fried chicken. Tell me more. What does that mean? Love is love. What does that even mean? What is love? How do we know? How do we know what it is? Look at what he says in verse 16. By this we know love, that Jesus laid down his life for us. Love is not what our culture says or what you think or I think. Love is defined as the sacrificial action of Jesus to lay his life down for you and I. That's what love is. And notice what he goes on to say in verse 16. He says, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our life for God. No, he, he, he says something even more shocking. He says, and we ought to lay down our lives for who? For the brothers, for the sisters, for the family of God. Now, friends, this is amazing because love, as defined by Jesus, is sacrificial action, doing good, giving away yourself, even to the point of your own life, for other people, whether they deserve it or they've earned it or whatever. It's unconditional love the way that Jesus has loved us. John Stott says it this way. He says, the self-sacrifice of Christ is not just a revelation of love to be admired. It is an example to copy. So friends, love isn't a feeling. It's not a vibe. It's not an emotion that you fall into or out of. Love is sacrificial action for the good of another person. Now, here's my assumption. My assumption is that if somebody came in today and did the unthinkable and tried to uh, hurt us or bring harm to us or murder, murder us or whatever, I know without a doubt that there are people in our church 
that would, out of love and out of an act of valor and courage, they would stand up and they would, they would offer their very life in protection of other people. I know that that would happen. I've, I have a lot of confidence that there's men in our church and there's people in our church that would just rise to the occasion and lay down their life to protect other people in this room. But, but, but here's something that's really, really tricky. Like, how do you love in the day-to-day mundane stuff? How do you love the church in the regular activities of just day-to-day stuff? L- let me ask another question. Is it even possible to attend a church once a month and have your life marked by that type of love? That's truly sacrificial action for the good of another person. Is that possible? Maybe. Is it possible to attend a church every week but avoid community and be known as a person of love? How do you know if you really are someone of love and your love is marked by action, sacrificial action for the good of another person? It's by getting into the lives of other people into the church. And so this is an invitation for all of us to not just assume that we're people of love, but to actually test that theory in a real-life example by getting into a community group or getting into a group of people that I'm gonna, I'm gonna commit to doing life with you and we're gonna walk together and we're gonna do things. And here's what I love about our church. What I love about our church is our radical diversity. There's people from all over different types of backgrounds or ways of seeing the world or passions or political persuasions or whatever. And it, this is not like the room of people that we would all sign up to be like, these are my best friends, right? In fact, if you're in a community group at all, you know like I probably wouldn't pick at least 50% of these people to be friends with in my life. And yet here I am, and I genuinely love them, and we're doing life together, and that's why this matters, is because as we're formed into this family of God metaphor, we experience this holiness flowing from God to us out of our lives, but we also experience the sacrifice of Jesus and his love shaping how I love others. This is what shaped the early church. I'll read this, and then we'll wrap it up. There was a second century apologist that was writing to a Roman emperor to try to make a case for Christianity. And one of the cases he made was by pointing to the church, think about this, and saying, look at the way they live. Look at the way they live. Here's what he says. He says, they love one another, and he who has gives to him who has not without boasting. And when they see a stranger, this is most likely a reference not just to a complete outsider, but a stranger who is a a follower of Jesus from one town to another. When they see a stranger, they take him into their homes and they rejoice over him as a very brother. And if there is among them any that is poor and needy, and if they have no spare food, what do they do? Well, of course, they fast two or three days in order to supply to the needy their lack of food. Such, O king, is their manner of life. And verily, this is a new people, and there is something divine in the midst of them. Something I pray for Frontline Church is that people in Moore or South OKC or Norman or wherever would point to Frontline and say, there is something divine in the midst of them. I don't understand it. Like, in a, in a moment where our world is polarized and divided, they found a way to live holy lives marked by sacrificial love. So where do we go from here? Friends, I want to invite you to think about this. What family trait needs the most growth in your life right now? Is it the holiness trait? Is it the love trait? Maybe both? Where is is your Father in heaven inviting you to take on more of his personality, more of his DNA? What would change if your primary posture toward the church was one marked by family? 
One of the most concerning things that I've noticed happen in the last three years or so among Christians is a propensity to be apologetic towards our culture and hypercritical and negative towards the church. And to actually take on a posture where we're agreeing with the world. Yeah, the church is a hot mess, isn't she? She is a problem. She is really messed up. She is really distorted. The church has got it wrong here, 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 here. The church has failed here, 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 and here. And friends, can we just admit, has the church failed? Yeah, we failed, right? Because the church is made up of us, and we fail all the time. So are, are we messy? Are we broken? Yes. But are we also known as the bride of Christ? Yes. And, and do you think that's offensive at all for Jesus to have us talk about his bride that way? Probably so. Are we not also the family of God? Yes, which means that this primary love, this primary devotion, this primary concern, this primary desire to self-sacrifice is not just for people in general. Remember what Paul says in Galatians, do good to all, but especially who? Those of the household of faith. You should be cautious saying negative things about the church of Jesus Christ. You should be slow to speak about your brothers and your sisters that are in your family that you are responsible and accountable to. This should change the way that we posture ourselves towards the church. Amen? Finally, our world desperately needs to see this. There's an election cycle coming up, and I don't have to tell you what that means, but people are about to get weird right? People are about to get wild, and now is a chance for us to say, hey, hey, there's a different way to live as a church. There's a different way where we don't have to divide. We don't have to be polarized. We, don't, we can hold real disagreement, but we can actually offer one another true sacrificial love. Do you stand with me? How do we, how do we do this? How do we live lives of holiness and love? Well, friends, we come every week to this moment. This is the pinnacle of our service where we remember the body of Jesus that was broken for us in our place. And we remember the blood of Jesus that was shed so that we could be forgiven and adopted and chosen. And as we remember this meal, what we're remembering is the love of Jesus to sacrifice his body for mine, to absorb the wrath of God so that I could absorb the love and mercy of God. To, to drink the cup of justice so that I could drink the cup of forgiveness. And as we behold this, it does something to our hearts where it's reorienting our lives around his sacrifice for us. And so today, if you're in a place where you're saying, I, I actually need the Father to grow holiness in my life. I, I need love to be bolstered in my life right now. That's what this meal is for. This is a meal where you get to come and behold and remember. And don't forget these words that we started with. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we, that people like us, should be called children of God, and so we are. Do you ever just throw your head back and go, people like us get to be children of God? That's, that's crazy, that's amazing, that's ridiculous. People like us get to be children of God? Man, let this blow your mind today in a fresh way. Come and receive his love for you in a fresh way so that his love will flow out of you and how you see not just others, but especially brothers and sisters in Christ. So if you're not a follower of Jesus, we love you like crazy. We're honored that you're with us. We're gonna ask that you not take this meal. This is a meal of faith. Um, but what we wanna do is invite you to pray some prayers that are on the screen. We think these would be helpful places just to engage God where you are right now.
And also, please come back next week and the next few weeks as we dig into Genesis. I think that's going to be a very helpful resource as you wrestle with the whole claim of Christianity. So, followers of Jesus, you're, you're, you're invited now. Come receive the body and the blood of Jesus in a fresh way so that his love can flow out of you in fresh ways.